This morning we're going to read from Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. You may be seated. Thanks, Amanda. So Matthew 17, the transfiguration of Jesus. I was reading this story this week, and it, it made me think of the like 2019 craze, tell me without telling me. Are you familiar with that? So it's like, tell me you're from Florida without telling me. And you see a picture of a kid petting a gator or something. And, or tell me you have little kids without telling me. And you see a picture of a toilet with a remote or a phone in it. So functionally, this, this is similar. Like the story of tell me without telling me. Tell me that you are the Christ, the son of the living God without telling me. Well, glow with the glory of God, bring two dead people visibly in front of you and have God audibly speak. That, that would do it. <laughs> you, could, you could say that, that communicates something about who Jesus is, which is exactly Jesus's desire in the transfiguration. So in the past two weeks, we've gone through these other passages where Jesus first is telling his people, his disciples, who he is, that is the Christ, the son of the living God, and what he must do, die. And so in the transfiguration, he's confirming, he's proving that what he has said about who he is and what he must do is in fact true. So he brings Peter, James, and John uh, up to the top of this mountain. Peter, James, and John are kind of Jesus's inner circle. We're not explicitly told why, but we can venture some guesses. And at this moment, we get to witness what most every scholar would call one of the most pivotal moments in Jesus's ministry when he shows them something about who he is in a way that confirms that yes, he is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God and he has come to die for some specific reason. So that's basically how I wanna walk through the story. How does Jesus' glory at the transfiguration confirm who he is and how does Jesus' glory at the transfiguration confirm what it is that he must do? So first, how does Jesus' glory at the transfiguration confirm who he claims to be? Well, it confirms it in four ways. And right there, you're thinking, I thought there were only two points, and then there's four points in the first point. But 
We're going to move fast through these. First, he is confirmed by his shining face. So in many ways, the the book of Hebrews is the perfect accompaniment to to this story because you can summarize Hebrews and basically by saying Jesus is greater than X. So Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. And in this case, Jesus is greater than Moses. So think back to Mount Sinai when Moses goes on the mountain, meets with God. He comes down the mountain. And what was unique about Moses at that time? His face was shining. And so he, he was reflecting the glory of God so brilliantly that they have to veil Moses' face so that he doesn't blind all the people who come in, in proximity of him. But unlike Moses, Jesus isn't simply reflecting the glory of God. He's showing his own glory, a glory that is uniquely and essentially his. So this is one of the many ways that Jesus is greater than Moses. One commentator said, here we see Jesus more clearly for who he is. That is, with the dullness of earthly conditions temporarily stripped away so that the true nature of God's beloved son can for once be seen. And then in addition to his face shining, his clothes are shining too. They're shining like light, which I have to imagine the disciples would have immediately thought to Psalm 104, which says, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. This is exactly what the disciples are witnessing. So he confirms who he is by his shining face and clothes. And then secondly, it's confirmed by the presence of Moses and Elijah. So if you don't know the stories of Moses and Elijah, they're basically two of the most prominent figures in the Old Testament and two of the most prominent figures in human history. Moses gave the, received from God the law and gave it to the Israelites. Elijah was one of the most important prophets of all the prophets, and the prophet's job is basically to come to the Israelites and help ensure that they are obeying the law that Moses has handed down to them. Now, how the disciples knew that this was Moses and Elijah, I have no clue. I mean, they've been dead for thousands of years. I, I don't know if Jesus made an introduction, if they introduced themselves, if they were in name tags, or if like the Holy Spirit just opened their eyes. I don't know. But what's clear is they knew this is Moses and Elijah here. So the next question is, how then does the presence of Moses and Elijah confirm who Jesus says that Jesus is? Because on one hand, bringing anybody back from the dead, whatever it is that's happening here, if they're back from the dead, resurrected, manifested, whatever it is, bringing anybody back would confirm something about who Jesus is. I mean, he could have, why not bring back their sweet grandmothers? You know, why Moses and Elijah? Because Jesus is showing them that he is the fulfillment and the culmination of the work of the law and all the prophets. And Jesus has already said this, Back in Matthew 5, where he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the other thing that we can't ignore when we have Moses and Elijah here is recognizing that we're on a mountain. We're on the top of a mountain because important things all throughout Scripture tended to happen on top of mountains. So Moses was on top of Mount Sinai when when God's presence manifested itself there and he spoke to Moses and he gave him the law. 
Elijah on Mount Carmel. So that's when Elijah called down fire on the sacrifice to defeat the false claims of the false prophets of Baal. Then later, Elijah went back to Mount Sinai and he met with God there again. And here we are again on top of a mountain with the very glory of God being shown in the person of Jesus. So Moses and Elijah and just being on top of a mountain is confirming that Jesus is who Jesus said he was. The, son, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then third, Jesus is confirmed by the voice of God. So every time we read an, about an audible speaking of God the Father, where people can hear in the Gospels, two things are happening. One, God is encouraging his Son in his ministry and work. And two, God is encouraging the disciples in their faith. And so you, you may remember at Jesus' baptism, at the hands of John the Baptist, God spoke audibly, and we read in Matthew 3, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And, a vo- and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I think Peter is going to be a fun dude to hang out with in heaven. He he strikes me as someone that can laugh at his own mistakes, and I sure hope that's the case. I think it is, because this is going to be one of those moments, I think, unless he proves me wrong there. So Peter, he's seeing something totally supernatural, and he just doesn't know what to do. And he's seen a lot of supernatural at this point. He's seen Jesus walk on water. He's seen Jesus heal people. He's seen demon possessions fixed. He's seen Jesus stop storms. But what is going on here tops all of them. And, and Peter just doesn't know how to respond. You know, it kind of like reminds me of like Ricky Bobby in his hands. He just doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. So the hands just go up. I think that's Peter. So Peter says, when all this is happening, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yeah, Peter, it's really good that you're here right now. <laughs> Praise God, you are here to make these shelters for Jesus and these manifested prophets of old, because God forbid that the Son of God would uh, be inconvenienced by the the elements up here. (laughs) I I just don't think Peter knew what to do, so he's just coming up with stuff. And then as Matthew records, he says, as Peter was still speaking, a cloud appeared and God spoke. Spoke, not smoke, spoke. And I think this is a really nice way of saying that God interrupted Peter before he embarrassed himself even more. (laughs) And God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I mean, do you hear it to Peter? Stop talking. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. And you would do well to shut your mouth and just listen to him in this moment. And there's a lesson here for all of us. When, when we don't know what to do, when we don't know what to say, are we just talking to speak? Are we staying busy to just fill up the time? Or are we making time in our lives to just and sit and listen? Listen to Jesus. And I also think there's a, a decent chance that Peter's making another mistake. by When he says, I'll make, I'll make a tent for each of you, there's a chance that Jesus is putting Elijah and Moses on the same level as Jesus. But there, I mean, as, as important as Elijah and Moses were in their roles, there is only one Son of God, and they existed in those roles to point toward Him. 
And if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18, you will see that this would not be offensive to Moses. <laughs> the idea that Jesus is greater than Moses because Moses said in Deuteronomy 18:15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so in this church, we, we, we have the great blessing of having, sending missionaries, having them come back, telling us what's been going on. They go back. And one of the challenges of doing ministry in places like India is that they'll embrace Jesus. They'll believe about Jesus at the very least, but then they just put them on the shelf with all their other idols, the cat and the cow and whatever I, thousands of idols they have in that context. So they have all these idols and they're willing to, to grab Jesus when it suits them. And we do the same thing in Western culture, just in a different way. Our idols may look different, but we still have them. We have idols of financial success and family and education and influence which we can look to as our main hope of assurance and comfort and satisfaction and joy, and we'll reach up on that shelf and grab Jesus when he suits us. So, so we do the same thing. We make the same mistake. And then fourthly, we see Jesus' claims confirmed by the cloud, which is the very presence of God. So this cloud was communicating something very specific to the disciples. It isn't like God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit decided we just want to make this event more dramatic and creepy, you know, kind of like Hollywood Horror Nights or something. Something very intentional is happening that the, the disciples would have understood right when they, they would not have missed it. Peter, James, and John, I'm convinced, would have known that this cloud represents what we call the Shekinah glory of God. Now, in the first service, I said that really fast, and somebody thought that I was saying the cloud represented just a kind of glory of God. <laughs> it's, no, the Shekinah glory, which is a visible manifestation all throughout the Old Testament of God's presence in a place, usually uh, declaring something good about what is going on. So we have the Shekinah glory of God in you know, leading Israelite out of Egypt into the promised land. This cloud protects Israel from the pursuing Egyptians. I think that it's probable that this is the same cloud that was on the top of Mount Sinai. Uh, this is the cloud that filled the tabernacle when they made the tabernacle in the wilderness and it filled it so Moses couldn't go in. It's the same cloud that uh, filled the temple when Solomon dedicated the temple, declaring that God's presence is here and he is pleased with what's going on. I think it could be the same cloud that appeared at Jesus' ascension. The, the cloud is communicating something very clearly all throughout Scripture about God's very presence in that place in a unique way. And this cloud is one of the most significant ways that God declares His presence. So in the same way that God blessed Moses, the Israelites, the tabernacle, and the temple by allowing His presence to be seen in a visible way and, and blessing what is going on in the same way He's doing this for the Son of God in this moment, declaring through His presence that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the, come, the, the Savior who has come to save His people. He is also the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets here manifested in this one person. The cloud is communicating a lot. 
But Jesus' glory at the transfiguration, it doesn't just confirm who He is. It actually does a lot to confirm what He said He is here to do, to die. So how is that? Three ways. Now we're up to seven points. But again, we'll move through them quickly. First, it's confirmed by the inseparability of His glory and the cross. So Jesus' glory and the cross, they cannot be separated. So think about this. What, what does Jesus tell after the transfiguration? They're walking down the mountain. What does Jesus tell his disciples? Don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody what happened. Why is that? It's because the vision of his glory is not to be proclaimed until the reality of his suffering and death on the cross has been accomplished. They go together. They're inseparable. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That word until is really important. It's linking the glory that they're seeing at the transfiguration to the cross itself. No one will ever understand the cross without understanding the glory of Jesus, and no one is ever going to understand the glory of Jesus without understanding the cross. They go together. The Christ who was transfigured in glory on this mountain is the same Christ who would be disfigured in shame on the cross. They go together. They cannot stand apart. They're separate but inseparable acts of God's glory being manifested to his people. In Luke's account of the story, he actually adds something that makes this even more clear. Luke says that on the mountain, Moses and Elijah were talking about Jesus' departure, that is, his death. So Luke 9, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So it's clear the departure is Jesus' death. And Jesus, what he's wanting his disciples to do is to understand his messianic vision. That the, the link between Jesus' glory and his cross, it cannot be broken. And the Greek word here for departure is literally exodus. So, I mean, just think about it. You have Moses who led the exodus of God's people out of Egypt into the promised land, talking to Elijah about the greater exodus that Jesus is going to lead his people in, out of our sin, into the better promised land. It's confirming what he's here to do. Because that does not happen, that great exodus, if we separate Jesus' glory from his cross. And I don't want to rehash last week's sermon on cross-bearing, but I do want to at least say that when we see Jesus' glory cannot be separated from this cross, then we can begin to find more joy and satisfaction in our own cross-bearing. So we find joy and satisfaction there because as we do, we more significantly experience and revel in the glory of Jesus at the cross, his work to redeem us. All right, then second, and I apologize, this is not going to be in the outline up there because I came up with this this morning, and I have a hard noon Friday deadline on my outline, and I don't want to throw any kinks in all of the people who make everything else go so well. So you'll have to write this one down. The second, it is confirmed by the coming of Elijah. And so this is where we get to all the questions about Elijah. The disciples are confused about Elijah. They ask, they ask, why is it that the scribes say that Elijah needs to come first? And so what they're asking, there's a chronological problem and there's a theological problem. 
So the chronological problem is the scribes say that Elijah must come first, but we saw Elijah and you actually came first. So that doesn't make sense. And then the theological problem is that in Malachi chapter 4, what talks about Elijah, we'll read it in a second, it's, God says that Elijah is going to come and he's going to restore all things. So if Elijah is going to come and make everything right, if he's going to fix all of our relationship with God and everything's kind of honky-dory, why would anybody ever kill Jesus? That doesn't make sense. But then Jesus helped them to see that John the Baptist was the Elijah prophesied. And, and you got to stay with me here because this makes everything make sense. John the Baptist was Elijah and y'all rejected him. He was rejected. And so this is really important because here are the last two sentences, the last two verses of the Old Testament. And behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter, utter destruction. So do you see what he's saying? Elijah, yes, he'll restore everything unless you don't accept him unless you don't receive him, and that's exactly what happened. John the Baptist came, he is the Elijah, the predecessor of the Messiah, and he was rejected. And because of that, the Lord will in some way bring a decree of utter destruction. So this makes sense to them, I think, at this point. Because the people didn't see John the Baptist for who he was, now they should expect something bad to happen, and it makes sense, okay, now, now that I understand the Elijah thing, I understand why you would die. And if there's any doubt about this, here's the actual Elijah standing here. <laughs> so, so as a confirmation of what it is that Jesus is saying. So, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus, was rejected because sinful people could not see God's work for what it was, and now God in his glory, being glorious himself, he must come to strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Jesus, though, in his glory, as God the Son, went to the cross to take that destruction in our place for all those who put our faith in him. So Elijah confirms what Jesus will do. And then lastly, at the transfiguration, Jesus' death is confirmed by Scripture. So Scripture's been foreshadowing that the Messiah would suffer and die. If you're looking for it, it's clear. In many places, probably no place as clear as Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was his chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that was prophesied. And years later, Peter would go and write about the events of the transfiguration in 2 Peter chapter 1. And some have used what Peter writes to, to say that Scripture is more clear than even seeing Jesus transfigured. I don't think that's what Peter is trying to do here. Peter's conclusion is not only that Scripture confirms that Jesus would die, but in his transfiguration and death, Scripture itself is confirmed. It is made more sure. So here's what Peter wrote. 
for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from the heaven, from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and here it is, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So scripture confirms Jesus' mission, and Jesus accomplishing that mission confirms scripture. Which I could jump into a whole sermon about scripture, but suffice it to say, we need it, and it's good, and it's right, and it's accurate, and it informs every aspect of life and godliness, to use Peter's words. All right. I do feel like we have done a lot of thinking over the past few weeks, and, and thus is the nature of these three passages, but we're not just here to learn something in our head. We, it has to make it to our hearts at some level. So the question that I want us to think about here at the end is how is it that the glory of Jesus at the transfiguration confirming who he is and what he must do, how should that affect our daily lives? It's a question about glory. So I would argue that we are all naturally seeking glory and we naturally do not know where to find it. So think about your favorite college football team. And if you don't like college football, whatever your equivalent would be. But when your college football team is doing well, how does that make you feel? Awesome. <laughs> you feel awesome when your college football team is doing well because your college football team is receiving glory and we get to borrow from that glory. We get to take some of that glory because we're seeking glory and we're willing to grab at it wherever we can find it. And as any good FSU fan knows, that glory does not last. It will fade. It will let us down. I know a guy in Orlando who, when I talk to him, he goes on and on about his business. He can't talk about anything but his business. His business is very successful. It, it seems like he can't see anything outside of his business. He doesn't care about anything outside of his business. And I think he's doing this to fill a longing in his heart. His, his, the glory in, that he longs for, he's borrowing from the success of this business. But you can see that it's not enough because for him, there's always another hill to climb. There's always another place to go. There are always opportunities for growth and it, it doesn't satisfy him. So there always has to be something more. I know another guy who uh, sought his glory in his business. His business did well, but he came to a point where he realized that it wasn't enough. And at that point, he began to decide to numb himself to the insufficiencies of the glories of his business through alcohol and women who he was not married to. And in the church over the past few years, the American church, and we would be no exception, I think a lot of the divisions that we've experienced is because we are seeking glories that do not satisfy us. So whatever, glories to the political secular left, glories to the political secular right, the glories of wokeness, glories of anti-wokeness, whatever it is, when we allow these things to divide us, we're showing that we, in our division, lack the glory that Jesus wants us to see in him. 
And if we're looking to borrow glory from anything in the world other than Jesus, not only will we not be satisfied, we will become slaves to that thing. We will become slaves to the things from which we borrow glory because they will never satisfy us and we have to keep going back more and more and more and more. We'll be slaves to our business, slaves to fashion, slaves to money, slaves to sport, slaves to sex, whatever it is that we're drawing glory from because it can't give us what we are wanting it to give us, we become slaves to that thing. So let's just think honestly for a moment. This isn't just a problem for non-Christians. <laughs> you know, this is a problem all people have. And, and it happens uh, unknowingly, slowly, often, but we have to be intentional to identify where are those places where we are beginning to borrow glory in a way that only Jesus can give us. And so these are probably going to be the things that we find ourselves talking about a lot or the things that we want other people to say about us. And they're probably things that if we're honest, if we don't, if we lose this thing or never accomplish this thing, then it's going to be hard to live our lives. I don't know how I will be content or satisfied without this thing. Whatever that applies to, that's one of those areas where we are borrowing or taking glory. So what is that thing? It's interesting to me to see how the disciples responded to Jesus glowing and God the Father speaking audibly. Matthew says in verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. So being confronted with the true glory of God, that can and should be terrifying for many reasons, but one reason is because it is an indictment of all the insufficiencies of all the other places that we go to and look for glory, and that very naturally causes a panic inside of us. The glory of God is an indictment that our business, our fashion, whatever it is we're borrowing glory from, it's insufficient because the glory of God is so much greater. But when we see God's glory, the glory of Jesus Christ for what it is, then it becomes our ultimate source of contentment and satisfaction and joy because his glory will never fade and it will never let us down. And when we see that, we're no longer slaves to the things that we used to ask for glory. They now can be a vehicle through which we communicate and display the glory of God coming through us. So we don't, that thing, we don't, we're not the slaves of that thing. That thing now is a vehicle of God's glory. So when our businesses is no, when our business is no longer our glory, then we're freed up to run that business in a very different way because at the end of the day, our value is not affected by the numbers. When we find our comfort in the glory of Jesus, we're not going to be as tempted to numb ourselves to the insufficiencies of these other futile pursuits. And if you have a, joy, a job that you really don't like, and, and that's, a lot of people have that, <laughs> If Jesus is our glory, then we're going to be okay with that. We're not going to think that our value is affected because we don't enjoy our jobs. Because we have the glory of Jesus Christ. The only place we will find the glory that we seek is in Jesus on the cross. And that place where the glory of God is most visible 
and magnificently, visibly and magnificently displayed is the cross of Jesus Christ, the place where the glory of God and the cross intersect. And if we're the kind of church that embraces that, that seeks and is comforted and is satisfied by the glory of Jesus Christ and through what he did on the cross, then we're going to be a church that is collectively that city on a hill, that light shining, communicating something about God's glory to a world that's looking for glory every day, all day, but just doesn't know where to find it. So, the message of the transfiguration is that Jesus is who he said he is. He is the son of the living God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And he intentionally, in God's providence, went willingly to die for our sins so that we no longer have to look for glory in all these other things who will, that will not provide it. But he is opening a gateway of glory for us when we believe in him and what he did for us on that cross. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for your glory being revealed to us, and we pray that that would be increasingly so. Not that you, we don't pray that you would have more glory, you are glorious, but we pray that we, in our inability to see things the way they truly are, that we would see your glory more clearly, and that it would affect our lives, that we would be more satisfied, joyful people who are more willing to bear crosses because we see the glory of Jesus Christ on that cross. We pray that you would use it to conform us into the image of the Son, that you would use it to draw others closer to you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.